0: Good morning. Good to see you all. How many of you like surprise endings to a book or a short story, to a movie? I saw a movie on a recent flight, and uh, it was called The Accountant. I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend it. But uh, the twist at the ending kind of made that movie for me. Some Some of the movies over the years that have been classics, I think, are The Sting, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, or the Shawshank Redemption, or what about in the Star Wars series in The Empire Strikes Back, when Darth Vader reveals his identity to Luke Skywalker. I won't tell you what he said in case you haven't gotten there yet, <laughs> 30 years ago, whatever. And you know what makes all the lists is uh, Planet of the Apes, is a surprise ending movie. I, I never, never saw that one, okay? But anyway, uh, that last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, when he came into Jerusalem on Sunday, what we now call Palm Sunday, they were waving palm branches and placing them and their garments in the road before him and just praising him to great acclaim. And his disciples had to be soaking that in. And they couldn't have conceived that by the end of the week, their master would be crucified. To them, that would have been the bitterest of surprise endings, only to be eclipsed by the jubilant surprise ending of the resurrection a few days later. But even that, the resurrection, wasn't the ending. It was a new beginning. And it would be something that, uh, wow, would surprise a lot of people how it would all end. And Jesus took the opportunity during that last week to give his disciples a glimpse of the end of the age, interestingly. And he didn't give them a spoiler alert, but he alerted them to how it would all end. When you think about it, he did that not just to intrigue them, not just to create interest in what would happen after he ascended, But he wanted to affect the the way they would live their lives. And that's why I believe this is in that account of that last week. You might think, some of you well, how come the pastor isn't giving a typical Palm Sunday message on Palm Sunday about coming into Jerusalem? Well, you might ask, well, why didn't Jesus, or why did Jesus give so much attention to the end times during that very week? I think for that reason, that he wants to affect the way his disciples live until he does come again. So I want to share several points with you, and they're in your outline this morning. Here's the first Events of Jesus last week surprised his disciples, but he told them what was coming so neither they nor we would be caught by surprise. So, what were those events? If you start reading in the Gospels, uh, you see several surprises that happened that final week before the cross. I mean, we looked at a couple of them last weekend. The cursing of the fig tree on the way in from Bethany. That was a surprise. And then he goes into the temple and starts flipping over money tables, uh, changers' tables and, and the people who are selling the sacrifices. He's driving them out of the temple. That was a surprise. And then in interactions with the Sadducees, these were the ones who had the wealth among the Jews in Jerusalem. They controlled the Sanhedrin. He silenced them. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And uh, in his response to them, he just shut them down. I think that would have been surprising. The Pharisees, who were the separated ones, who were the religious ones, I mean, they were trying to trap Jesus, and he blasted them. He called them, in front of the crowd, hypocrites. Wow, that's surprising. Blind guides, whitewashed tombs. And so Jesus' actions through that last week, I think, were very surprising to the disciples. And there would be more. For instance, when they came into the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal, and Jesus stripped down to the garb of a slave and got down on his knees and washed their feet. That was very surprising. The betrayal of Judas, one of their own, that would have been surprising, as well as Peter's own denial. Surprising for sure to himself and probably to the other disciples. But it was in between these events, that final week, when they came out of the temple and were coming off the Temple Mount. When the disciples turned around and pointed to those magnificent buildings of the temple structure and were commenting on them, and Jesus said, not one stone of these will be left on another, but they all be torn down. That would have been surprising. And then in verse 3 of chapter 24, it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? There were actually three questions in that question. When will these things be? When will this temple that Israel glories in be torn down? That was inconceivable to them, by the way. Are you kidding? And then, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And in the verses that follow in that entire chapter we see all of those being answered the thing is they're kind of woven together and scholars have attempted to pull them apart and to see exactly what Jesus meant about each one but all those elements are present and uh, you can see for instance Jesus talks about Jerusalem being surrounded this and other gospels depict uh, the legions of Rome coming as they did in 70 A.D and destroying the city and the temple. But there's also much in here that relates to his second coming and to the end of the age. And his message to them, and I think to us, is don't let anyone mislead you. He talked about false messiahs who would come in his name, claiming to be the Christ. He talked about wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes. Well... You know, I've been uh, in the church for many decades now, and it's really interesting to hear all the prophecy teachers through the decades coming along and pointing to current events, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and there are are a number of them, and they've been increasing and tying that right to Scripture. And uh, we have to be careful not to be led by that because many have actually affixed dates To the return of Christ. And that's not a wise thing to do. Jesus said these are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. He said there would also be tribulation. That his disciples would be given over to persecution. And he said they'll kill you. And we woke up this morning to news of the suicide bombers in Egypt. And uh, many of our brothers and sisters killed today in Egypt. That's been happening continually. Uh, through the centuries, and that has also uh, increased very much in these last days. But to make predictions of dates or of fixed times, not a good idea. In fact, if you look at the prophecies that have been made by teachers over the last several decades, most of them have been wrong. But it doesn't seem to phase them. They'll just come up with new newspaper articles and, and take those same scriptures. And uh, reinterpret them and uh, move on. Jesus gives this warning. Verse 37, chapter 24. He says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Life was normal. Until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came, And took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So the Lord didn't want us to focus on dates and wild predictions. Instead, he gave us a mission to accomplish then and now. And so the disciples of Jesus' day had to be surprised by the frightening nature and scope of that mission. I mean, he talked about natural disasters. He talked about human opposition and violence. He talked about the sun and the moon being darkened and stars falling from the sky. Nuclear warfare? Maybe. Uh, A bit speculative. But something is happening toward the end of the age. And then he says this in verse 12. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And it almost appears that if you can just hang on to your faith, then that's the goal. But it really isn't. No, because he gave each of us and his church an assignment. And we see it in verse 14. Jesus said this gospel, this good news of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Now, put yourself in the sandals of those first disciples. How would they understand that? That this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. What would that have represented? Well, they would have understood the the word world in their language to mean the inhabited earth. And in their minds, they'd heard about places as far east as India and to the west as far as Spain. I mean, the Apostle Paul wanted to get to Spain in their day. Uh, King Solomon had a fleet of ships that were merchant ships, and they would make it all the way across the Mediterranean to Spain a thousand years before. So they knew that, wow, that world is really big. And then it says, to all the nations, the word ethne, ethnos, and that means every people group with all, within all those countries that are united by a common language or geography or culture. It's like, wow, that's an impossible task. Can you imagine, I mean, how, they, how could they possibly wrap their minds around that? Do you expect us to do this, Jesus? And it would have seemed like unbelievable. Well, the disciples of Jesus, they had to be surprised by the frightening nature and scope of the mission. And many today are surprised to learn of its progress and imminent success. That's really what I want to share with you about today. But let's start with those disciples. It was a huge challenge. How would they go about it? Well, they didn't do anything for a time. You read the book of Acts, and they were kind of content to stay right where they were in Jerusalem. But it took persecution to drive them out as they began to share the gospel as they went. Now, we know that Eddie would go. Well, the disciples did go. And in fact, we have a little bit of a map to show you that. Um, Here's what happened. Mark, he goes down to Egypt, and... uh, James, he goes over to Spain, Peter to Rome, John up to Ephesus in Asia Minor, and Philip as well, and then Andrew made it clear up to the Caucasus Mountains, Bartholomew and Simon to Persia, and James the Just down to Saudi Arabia, and Thomas all the way to India. In fact, there are memorials today in India uh, commemorating his ministry among them there. I mean... The gospel then began to go forth for 20 centuries. But it's been in the last two centuries in particular that Christianity became a world religion. In fact, uh, Ruth Tucker, or excuse me, uh, Leslie Newbegin, who was the Bishop of Madras in India, uh, spoke of it this way. World Christianity is the result of the great missionary expansion of the last two centuries. That expansion, whatever one's attitude to Christianity may be, is one of the most remarkable facts of human history. One of the oddities of current affairs is the way in which the event is so constantly ignored or undervalued. The expansion of Christianity around the world has changed the world. I mean, everywhere the church has gone, culture has been transformed. They've built schools to educate people. They've built hospitals. The poor have been ministered to. Uh, slaves have been liberated. The uh, the status of women has been elevated, and you could go on and on and on. Look wherever the gospel of the kingdom has gone, it has absolutely transformed cultures and nations. I mentioned Ruth Tucker. She wrote a book back in 1983 called From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya, Irian Jaya in the East Indonesian island chain. And uh, it's, an, it's really an excellent book. It just has stories of the early missionaries all the way through the centuries and details what, what they did. In the foreword to that book, she asks a question. Who were these missionaries who sacrificed so much to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth? Were they spiritual giants who gloriously overcame the obstacles they confronted? No. They were ordinary individuals, plagued by human frailties and failures. Super saints? They were not. Like the colorful cast of biblical characters beginning with Genesis and continuing on through the New Testament, they were often marked by personality flaws and eccentricities. Yet they were willing to be used of God despite their human weaknesses. And it was in that sense that they were able to make such an indelible imprint on the world. And it wasn't only the missionaries who were ordinary people with their frailties and flaws. It was the people to whom they went with their failures and frailties and flaws that just took the gospel, ordinary people, to their neighbors And to their communities, and saw whole regions transformed. And that's how the gospel has gone around the world. Ordinary people, because God uses people. So, what's the fastest growing religion in the world today? We read that, oh, it's probably Islam. No, it isn't. It's absolutely Christianity. Islam grows uh, primarily uh, through biological birth, they have large families but christianity grows primarily by conversion growth and that's what's happening in vast parts of the world today we often are out of touch with that but it's especially growing exponentially in central and south america in africa and in asia i mean it's amazing in fact the face of christianity is no longer white and blonde but it's yellow and black and brown Philip Jenkins says this, if you, if you want to visualize a typical Christianity or contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian shanty town. In 1900, 80% of the Christians lived in Europe and America. 1900. Today, 60% of Christians live in the developing nations. It's amazing what's happened in these last two centuries. In fact, South Korea has the second largest number of missionaries sent out into the world, 12,000 of them, preaching the gospel out of South Korea. Africa, that's a continent, not a country. The continent of Africa in 1900 had less than 10% Christian. Now it's over 50% and growing rapidly. China... China, with uh, the attempts by the Mao revolution to stamp out Christianity completely and so many were slaughtered Uh, when missionaries came back in and when it opened up to a degree, we now know there are at least 60 to 100 million Christians and there are churches being planted all over China today in spite of the persecution and the limitations that it faces. Christianity is growing exponentially. The church is exploding all over the world. Philip Jenkins talks about the believers, especially in those developing countries. And he says this, What distinguishes these Christians is that they immerse themselves in the world of the Bible to a degree that even devout Western Christians do not. For poor people around the world, the social landscape of the Bible is quite familiar. They too live in a world of hardship, poverty, and money lenders. The theme of exile and persecution resonate with them. Supernatural evil seems quite real to them, and they have no problem in understanding the concept of hell. Some of them even expect the miracles of ancient times to be witnessed in their lifetimes, and they're seeing it. I mean, wherever the gospel goes into new frontiers, there's just an outbreak of miracles. When David Van Wagenen and Charlie Peterson came back from India, that's what they were telling us, that that's one of the reasons those churches are growing so rapidly today because of that very thing. Well, what about that concept that Jesus spoke about, the gospel of the kingdom? You know, she mentioned uh, the the, uh, title, or I mentioned the title of Ruth Tucker's book, From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. We had a fellow from Erie and Jaya here a while back, uh, some years ago now. He came with a missionary to our church. His name was Nellis. And uh, I've mentioned Nellis before because I often tell the story about after he shared uh, his testimony one morning, he came out on Lanai. We had just built a new worship center in Lanai. He came out on Lanai, he was so excited, and he just said to me, The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And I said, well, yeah, we just built that new lanai. and we're, No, no, he said Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Korean, and Samoan, kingdom of God. He was so excited because he'd never seen that before. He'd seen people in his Indonesia and uh, Irian Jaya, and he'd been to the mainland where they kind of group according to ethnicities, but he'd never seen anything like this. He was so excited. But his testimony that morning... Ruth Tucker said, from Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya. Well, that's where he was born, and that's where he was raised. And uh, he wanted to go into computers. His dad was a fisherman, but he scraped together enough money to send him to Jakarta, where he could enter a computer school. But his dad was an alcoholic, so it was a little tenuous. So he gets there, he tells us, and that he finishes his first semester, and the money that was supposed to come didn't arrive. His dad had drank it up. And so he said, I went into the president's office of the college and told him, I don't have any more money to continue, but I'm sure it will come. Can I continue? And the president said, no, you're out of here. You know, you're out of luck. And so I'm going to have to expel you from the school. So Nellis told us, matter-of-factly, so I decided I would kill him. I'm like, oh, wow. And uh, So he said, I started home that day, and I was in a street in in, uh, Jakarta, and somebody came up to me, a stranger, and said, do you know somebody loves you? He said, I said, nobody loves me. He said, no, somebody loves you. And he began to tell me that God loved me. And uh, he said, I denied that, but he continued to talk to me, and he gave me a little pamphlet. turned out to be a Four Spiritual Laws, by the way. And he said, I went back to the place where I was staying and I read that it was in his language and I got on my knees and I said well Jesus if you're real you come into my life and he said I knew something had happened within me and I knew that uh, I couldn't kill that president of the college I asked him later by the way I said well how are you gonna kill him Nellis and he said well I thought I'd follow him around for a week and just see his patterns and I'd kill him with a knife And, uh, Aries, we had a gal from Indonesia, Jakarta, tell us one time, if somebody from Miriam Jaya tells you they're going to kill you, you better make out your will. (laughs) So (laughs) he was serious about that. Well, instead, Christ intercepted him with this good news, and uh, he got in contact with a missionary we supported. And now, now Nellis is back in Papua New Guinea, And he's been able to bring the Bible into schools there. And that's what they're studying in the schools in that whole region. And he's been able to plant churches all over in Papua New Guinea. And so from Jerusalem to Erie and we've just personally seen that take place through the life of a person like Nellis. But back to that verse that uh, Jesus said would be the catalyst to his coming the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come one of our missionaries is Adam Jones and Adam grew up in this church and in our church in Hawaii Kai his parents are Helen Lana Jones and I want you to hear his perspective on this verse because of his missionary activity just a brief
1: video here Something incredible is about to happen and most people have no idea it's coming. Two thousand years ago, Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. I'm sure his disciples had no clue at that time just how many nations there are. When I learned that God has a plan to reach every nation and that we are a key part of it, I was compelled by God's call to serve in global missions. In 1994, I started working in the Jesus Film Project, where I developed the technology we needed to rapidly dub the Jesus Film into all the languages of the world. Recently, missions groups and churches around the world started collaborating to count how many nations, or people groups, there are based on ethnicity, language, and location. After 10 years of effort, we now count a total of 16,528 groups of people and today the gospel has reached almost all of them. What about the tribes and groups who have never heard about Jesus? Now there are only 1,211 groups left, and we know exactly where they are. We live in a time like no other, in an era when no borders or barriers can stop the story of Jesus. God has given our generation the opportunity to testify to all nations, and it could happen in as little as two years. I serve on a global communications team that is coordinating efforts of missionaries and churches around the world to preach the gospel to every nation. Never before in the history of the world has the opportunity been this great. Never before has fulfilling the Great Commission been so close. With your help, we can tell the story of Jesus to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is the hour and purpose for which we were born. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Will you join me to help Christians around the world finish the Great Commission?
0: Adam, Ali, and their family are one of our families of missionaries. We have many. Another would be James and Lois Hafford, and he is a Bible translator with Wycliffe Translators, and they've translated the Bible for the Wuvalu people uh, in a very remote part of East Indonesia. And presently, they're asking him to consider going to the Middle East, where he'll begin translating in untranslated languages there. Do you know that now every two to three days, a new translation of the Bible begins? It's about over. And uh, these are exciting times to be alive. I mean, it doesn't say, Jesus didn't say that everybody's going to receive it. But every people group has to have the opportunity to know of this gospel of the kingdom. So far from passively watching the plot unfold, like you might in a movie, we can affect the ending of the story. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples, to the church. We can have a part in seeing it come to pass. So why did he spend the time telling them about this surprise ending to the story? When he'll bring the curtain down on history, which is his story. Because the disciples then and now, by the way they engage their lives, can affect the end of the story. It wasn't just to entertain. It was to... Help us alter our lives. In fact, we know that because after chapter 24 when he talks about the signs of his return and the end of the age comes chapter 25. And in chapter 25 he tells a couple of stories. One of them is about 10 bridesmaids or virgins. And uh, they're waiting for the bridegroom. Five of them have oil in their lamps. Five of them forgot it. And so while they're waiting, the five have to go find oil. And in the meantime, the bridegroom returns, and those five missed him. That was a sharp point that Jesus made about being ready for his return. And then he told about uh, a master who had three slaves. And he entrusted to the each a uh, sum of money. And he went away, and he came back. And two of them had invested it and had given it back to him at his return. But one of them, remember, he buried it in the ground. I knew you were a hard man, you know, I knew you uh, scattered, uh, you reap where you've not sown and, and uh, gathered where you had not scattered, and so I just buried it in the ground. Well, Jesus dealt harshly with that slave, and his point was we shouldn't be like those foolish virgins that were unprepared or that slave. In fact, he said this at the conclusion of those stories, for this reason you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And so as a church and as individuals, we need to be faithful and sensible in the way that we use our lives to serve him and proclaim the gospel. I want to mention just in closing three things that I think we can do. First of all, we can pray for the missionary effort starting right here to the ends of the earth. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for uh, the church that is persecuted, for the Egyptian Christians today and for others so that the good news can go forth in spite of the hostility and fallenness and that peoples will be open. We can pray regularly and continually for the gospel of the kingdom. Secondly, we can partner with our missionaries right here, with one another as we're all missionaries in this culture And with our missionaries who are sent out, we have a lot of them, by the way. Some of you may want to join our missions committee. It's exciting to hear the reports of of those coming in, but we, we partner with them every time we give of our resources, because a good portion of our offerings goes to support our missionary efforts. We we have special offerings like our Easter offering, which will affect the gospel going forward. We partner with them not only in prayer but with our finances. And then third, we can personally give ourselves to this witness that Christ has entrusted to us. We can pray for unbelievers in our family, for those that we work with, for those that we live next door to. We can uh, build relationships with them and cross those bridges of that relationship by telling them our story telling them how Christ has made a difference in our lives, inviting them to an Easter service, uh, just reaching out continually and consistently with love and kindness to people that haven't yet known or found the Savior. That's what Christ calls us to do because one of these days, it's all going to end, and uh, the last person is going to get saved before Christ returns, and we want the ending to be a wonderful surprise to everyone that we can reach before he comes. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for this gospel of the kingdom that has reached us because someone was faithful to share this good news and to take a risk. And Lord, we want to be those people. We want to be that generation that anticipates your return and lives in light of it. And, Lord, I pray even this morning for anyone among us that hasn't yet come to know you, that this would be the day, that this would be the season that she or he would say, Yes, Jesus, I'm through living for myself. I want to live for you, and I want to make my life count for eternity. So would you move in that person's life this season in each of our lives as we recommit ourselves to this gospel of the kingdom and living for you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.